This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I remember him telling the story of a girl who was chained to a bed and had actually, when they rescued her, they had found that she had inscribed on the wall behind her, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And I just was weeping in my seat. And I I also kind of felt like one of those moments where it was like the Holy Spirit was just kind of tapping on my shoulder like, Jen, I want you to do something about this. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. When was the last time you felt overwhelmed? I think that's a feeling we've all experienced at some point in our lives. In those moments, it's hard to know what to do next. Jen Peterson, the Director of Mobilization for International Justice Mission and co-lead pastor of Resurrection Life New York City, experienced that feeling when she was confronted with some of the most terrible injustices in our world. She found herself asking the question, what can one person do to make a difference? Before we answer that question, let's step back and hear from Jen about what led up to that critical moment in her life. So Jen Peterson, where are you from? I actually was born and raised in small town Iowa. Not even small town Iowa, on a farm outside of a small town in Iowa, (laughs) where it took me 20 minutes to drive to the nearest grocery store. We had one blinking red light in our town where I went to school. Mm. I learned to ride a bike on a gravel road, which is not a small feat. I will add that. I have scars on my knees to prove it. Always dreamed of going to the city. I just Mm. loved people, wanted to be around people. And so really after college, ended up moving to the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, where my husband and I lived for nearly 20 years before moving to New York City. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Small town Iowa would have been interesting enough, but you said farm town. What kind of farm? So my dad was a farmer and he raised beef cattle and Mm -hmm. feed corn. So Hmm. not even seed corn, but feed corn. And I hope I'm getting this right. I will say, Rasul, I am not the best farm girl in the world. My brother and sister like to call me the indoor girl. But (laughs) anyway... Corn, soybeans, hay and alfalfa, but primarily beef cattle. What are some of the key experiences Mm. that you look upon and go, man, this was formative for me growing up in a farm? The things I think about when I think about my growing up is really the freedom that I had to explore to just adventure, to be outside, even though I was indoors as well, but to go outside and to know that there was a security there. I could imagine and dream, and there was really no limit to that Hmm. capacity to dream, which I look back on now, and I'm just so, so grateful for. I grew up in a family that were Christians, and so, you know, church was a huge part of my upbringing. Neither of my parents were pastors, but we were at the church a lot, and that just really, really formed me from an early age. And even when I go back to visit now, um, my dad has passed away just a couple years ago, Mm. but when I go back to visit my mom, like the sounds and the smells are just some of the things that are most dear to me. Did you feel like it was a common thing or uncommon that you you had this yearning for cities. I don't know. I was always such an extrovert. Even when I look back at my ministry journey, it took me a while to even be able to put words to God's calling on my life because I didn't have this lightning bolt calling moment like some do. Even my husband had that 
But mine was kind of this gradual, like, this is how I've wired you, Jen. And you've always had a passion for the church. You've always had a passion for just loving and serving and leading people. And this is how I'm bringing you along this journey. And it really took me several, several years Hmm. to kind of realize what that was, that it was God's calling on my life to ministry. As I got to my senior year, I looked around a little bit, but ended up going to the University of Northern Iowa, go Panthers. (laughs) I went to UNI, got my bachelor's in music and actually was kind of on that path. I sang a lot of opera, Mm. as well as doing some singer-songwriter stuff. And so that was kind of the path that I was on, was this path of, of music and performing. And then my husband graduated, so we got married in college. We were high school sweethearts. And then he ended up teaching middle school band for a year while I was finishing up. And he knew this is not what I (laughs) called to do. This is not what I need to be doing right now. But he had felt a really strong call to ministry. And so when I graduated, we started looking for worship ministry positions and ended up in the Dallas, Texas area. So we moved right after I graduated from college. We moved from Iowa to the Dallas area and went on staff at a church there. Interesting. So in the context, because your University of Northern Iowa is in Cedar Falls, right? Very good. Yes. <laughs> you had this yearning to live in a big city. So was that big city or did you somehow mm. put off that yearning that you had just a little while longer? I think that was a next step for sure. And at that point, I was young enough. I didn't really know what would pan out. It's funny, though, too. My freshman year of college, our choir actually sang at Carnegie Hall. So that was my mm. first trip to New York. Okay. And I remember coming home and just absolutely had fallen in love with the city. And to this day, my mom and my sister were like, oh, we knew after that trip that you would probably end up living in New York at some point. Wow. I mean, there's something about this city that it's just the people, the energy, the life that is here is unmatched, in my Mm. opinion, anywhere else. I don't know that I would have made that big of a jump Mm. to go from high school to the city without having a few stepping stones in between. No, that's cool. Now, you mentioned earlier that you love people and were drawn to people, especially to people who were hurting. Yeah. What were some early experiences of you witnessing people who were hurting and being aware of you leaning into that? Yeah. I think one of the first things that comes to mind is a a boy that I went to high school with had some disabilities and was often ostracized, you know, at school. And so it was really a beautiful thing that we just connected and kind of this circle of friends that we all had just sat with him every day for lunch. We went to church together. I think there was an intentionality of going, you know what, you are loved, you matter, no matter what. And that has stayed with me through the years, you know? And I think God really used that just to to shape and form the direction of my life, especially as it pertains to, you know, loving and, and serving and coming alongside those on the margins and those mm. who are oppressed yeah. and going, God, would you use my life for something bigger? Mm. Did you notice any response or reaction maybe before you and your you know group of friends connected with him to after what did that look like Mm. I think part of it is just going from being on the outside to belonging you know I think that's a big thing and it's a two-way street it's not like (laughs) here's all that I'm doing like no what I received this unconditional love I mean Mm. my goodness you know if you read Henry now and and just look at his life when he lived at La Arche Communities, right? And just going, I understood what it was to be loved unconditionally. That's a gift. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to prove anything. And you just go, this is a picture of Jesus right here that I am receiving through the flesh and blood humanity that is right across the table from Mm. me. That is just a gift. Yeah. And that's really powerful, especially in high school. You know what I mean? I think for everyone involved. So you now go from Cedar Falls, Iowa, bustling metropolis, <laughs> to <Yes, right. laughs> to Texas. To yeah, the suburbs of Dallas. Uh huh. What did you experience being in this metropolitan city, being around so many people, kind of achieving at least to an extent this idea that you had of serving and living amongst 
a dynamic group of people from all walks of life. Yeah, I loved it. It was such a joy. Well, I will say this too. We moved to a really affluent area. Mm -hmm. So at the time we were in Plano, Texas, and that was one of the really wealthiest suburbs in the country. So even that was a big shift for me just to go, whoa, the houses are so much bigger. It was a different standard of living that we by no means were used to at all. So even that was a shift, but also then you see the the disparity, you know? Mm. So I think God started to open my eyes to that. And even as we lived there for the 17 years we were there, the diversity increased tremendously, even in the suburb where we were, like right around the vicinity of our church. So that meant we had to change, right? Hmm. In a really beautiful way. We had to go, okay, how do we listen to this new community who's around us? So I think it started putting in me really this listening posture started going, oh, like culturally, you know, there's a whole new cultural awareness that needs to happen. And Also, early on, we partnered with our Latino congregation that was in East Dallas that was led by a Peruvian pastor to go to Peru on a mission trip that God just did amazing things. Mm -hmm. He actually birthed a church planting movement out of this trip that is still happening to this day off the tributaries in the Amazon And it was just one of these things that like, I'm so grateful to have been a part of that moment of time when you go, honestly, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were just going, okay, God, we're here, we're available, do what you will. And God was like, I'm going to start raising up leaders and churches all throughout the Amazon region. (laughs) Wow. So that opened my eyes tremendously. And then after that, we started traveling internationally quite a bit. We would take teams to Southern Africa. We spent a lot of time in Swaziland, Mozambique, Zambia, and South Africa, doing a lot with HIV, AIDS, education, and prevention. And really, my world began to expand. So Mm. I'm really, really grateful for that, that all of a sudden, I'm meeting people who have completely different worldviews, who have completely different growing up experiences. Mm. It changed my life for the better, for sure. And that's amazing to hear. I mean, oftentimes when someone goes on a mission trip or any kind of trip to kind of help, you can leave sometimes not knowing what was really accomplished or what the impact locally really was. But to actually see a movement continue on after you're gone up and down the, the Amazon, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I could see why that gave you that bug of impact and seeing what you could do beyond even a local area. But you said mm-hmm. something else that I wanted to circle back to because you said it kind of matter of factly, like, oh, the demographics of the community changed. So mm-hmm. that meant we had to change. Yeah. I don't think everybody sees it that way. Was that an immediate unanimous perspective or were there ever any tensions about how to respond to those demographic changes? Oh, I think there always is tension because there's that tension in, but this is how we've done it. Mm. And now we're looking at changing and I feel like our ears <laughs> have to grow so much. I feel mm. like our ears as pastors, as Christians, as missionaries, wherever we are, you know, if our ears could grow 10 times mm. as large, I think that would help so much because we do just have to go, all right, God, like, what are the people around us saying, needing? What is the good news of the gospel? How is that best going to be communicated to them? Because the way we've always done it might not be the way that it needs to be done right now. Mm. So yeah, there's always tension in that. And I think it's a beautiful tension, because I think that's what we're called to do in whatever moment we are in, is just to go, okay, Holy Spirit, you guide us. You tell us how to best communicate with people in the here mm-hmm. and now. That's beautiful. Do you remember anything in particular that was an example of what it meant to hear and then adjust the ministry yeah. approach as a result of those changes happening? Yeah. One of the biggest things around the same time that definitely the community around us was changing, actually, our our denomination was kind of on the forefront of opening immigrant legal aid centers around the country. 
And so I think we were like the fourth to open one in our church in Texas. It is where lay people or anybody (laughs) in the church can get certified through the Department of Justice in order to offer low-cost legal aid services to immigrant families through the church. And so that was really one way that we began to respond was just to go, hey, we can be trusted to provide this really needed service at low cost. We're not going to trick you and try to take more money than we need. We're going to do all that we can to come alongside you and your family at this time. So that was really one way that we responded in that time. And that's still open today. And in fact, we're actually opening another one here in Queens. So yeah, I think that's part of the listening process. I mean, it, it's simple and yet it feels very profound. So what was the biblical framework or like the guidance that you saw of how to respond, particularly in, in those ways? I mean, the Bible talks about injustice so often. If you were to take all of the sin that is talked about in the Bible and put it into piles, mm-hmm. idolatry would be the biggest pile followed second by injustice. So God cares so deeply about it. And, you know, names, I mean, when we talk about the quartet of the vulnerable, right, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, and it's just so clear that God's heart is for those who are on the margins. And so I think that was really the piece for us was just going, how do we tangibly come alongside those who just need that. Mm. So that that was a big piece of it. You know, we wanted to actually live out, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with mm. our God in whatever ways that God just seemed to be opening the doors to do so. That's beautiful. And it, I am curious about where does international justice mission and the Jen Peterson story kind yeah. of intersect and connect? So it was 2006, and I had taken a group of young leaders from Dallas to Atlanta for the Catalyst Conference. And I remember sitting in the stadium and Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, stepped onto the stage and shared his story. And I just remember kind of being frozen in my seat at that time, because really up until that point, I think I'd heard a little bit about human trafficking, but it wasn't so much on my radar. He told just this story of what IJM was doing and bringing rescue to these girls that were trapped in brothels. And I remember him telling the story of a girl who was chained to a bed and had actually, when they rescued her, they had found that she had inscribed on the wall behind her, Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Mm. And I just was weeping in my seat. And I, I also kind of felt like one of those moments where it was like the Holy Spirit was just kind of tapping on my shoulder, like, Jen, I want you to do something about this. And I remember going home from that conference, just shaken to the core. And it was like, I couldn't even really remember any other speaker. And a few weeks later, I was leading worship for a women's retreat. And my mentor was there who worked for another nonprofit that worked very closely with IJM in Cambodia. And she too was sharing a a similar, if not the same story. And again, it was just like, okay, God, like this is twice now. I'm hearing you talk about this. I'm sensing this call to do something. I don't know what to do. And I just remember thinking about Moses when he encountered the burning bush. And when Moses was like, who am I, God? Who am I to do anything? Like, what am I supposed to do? You know? And God said to him, what's in your hand? And that's when he had the staff, right? And it wasn't even the staff. It's what God was going to do with the staff. What's in your hand? Use that. And so I was like, well, what can I do? I'm a songwriter. I'll write a song. So I wrote a song, started actually using that and and leading worship in in some kind of anti-trafficking spaces just in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And then I had an invitation to go to Cambodia, where I was able to work with some girls that were in an emergency assessment center that had just been rescued, that IJM had worked with. We visited the IJM office, and it was on that trip that God was just showing me, like, this is the kind of healing that I can do. Like, Mm. I can actually take people who've experienced such incredible and deep trauma 
and I can actually bring healing. And that struck me so deeply of just going, this is who you are, God. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what I can do. I just want to say yes to you. Mm. Whatever that is, I just want to say yes to you. Jen realized that she alone could not stop injustice in the world, but that God could work through her using what was already in her hands. When we come back, Jen will share how that passion for justice grew, and we will discover some ways we can get involved in fighting injustice in the world. That's coming up next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Thank you so much for listening to Where You're From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Jen Peterson, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next guest, Kechi Akwuchi. This is where you're from. One of my closest friends was in the aisle seat next to mine. And I remember holding her hand. Like, that's, that's the last thing I remember doing. Looking into each other's eyes. I remember her eyes were just huge, glassy, and that's probably how mine looked too, because we're just like, what is going on? And then she says, what do we do? What is this? What's happening? And then I hear myself say, like, I don't know, maybe we should pray. I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. And... That's the last thing I said on that flight. That's the last thing I said to her, to anyone, last words I uttered before this like metal scraping, really like nails on chalkboard sound just like kind of filled my head. And then it was just darkness. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Jen Peterson. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but some links to learn more about Jen Peterson and International Justice Mission. You can find these links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Now let's get back into our conversation with Jen Peterson on where you're from. My husband and I felt called by God to plant a church in New York, which sounds super crazy. And we felt like this is crazy, God. Like, <laughs> who does this? But ended up planting a church here in the city. And part of when we launched the church, we said, we want to support IJM. Like we want the work of an organization like IJM to be a part of our DNA. Mm. And from day one, before we even had money, we were like, let's support IJM. What was it about New York and that moment that you sensed mm. was where God was calling you to as your next steps? When we really first started wrestling with it, we were actually here on a trip. It was my husband's 40th birthday. We were here on a jazz trip because he's a jazz musician too. So oh. we're both musicians and have always loved the city. And while we were here, basically said, hey, when our kids go to college, maybe we should move to New York. In fact, on that trip, I said, someone should plant a church in Manhattan. And then we went home. And that, <laughs> that's a good reminder of going, if you ever hear someone should, maybe that's <laughs> like a little check of your own. Oh, mm. So about six months later, we kind of went back to doing life as normal. There was just an opportunity that arose that it was just kind of God going, you could do this or you could really step out in faith and do this New York thing. Because at this point, it was like everything we read had to do with New York. Every scripture passage seemed to like <laughs> the city was highlighted. Mm. And so then we ended up just reaching out to our district superintendent here and just said, hey, if we were to be in New York for a time being, is there something you could see us doing, you know? Mm. And he immediately responded and said, can I call you right now? And got on the phone and he said, have you ever thought about planting a church in Manhattan? And we were just like, oh, no. <laughs> like, we have thought about that. We came back, met with a bunch of pastors, a bunch of ministry leaders, a church planting organization here in the city, and just said, God, I think you are asking us to do this and we're going to say yes. Mm. As terrifying as it was to say yes, because again, it's kind of that whole, who are we? Like, mm. 
who are we? But it's that reminder of God saying, what's in your hand? Just mm-hmm. be you. And that's probably one of the hardest things to mm-hmm. figure out in ministry and life in general is like, what does it look like to just be who God has created me to be and not try to be someone else in any of these spaces? And so we said yes. And we moved our then middle school kids to New York and have loved it. We've been here seven years now and just so grateful, so grateful for the community here, so grateful for the opportunities just to meet so many people, to live in this incredible, beautiful, hard city that it Mm. is. Mm. But I can't imagine so often, I just think, what if we would have said no? Mm. And oh, the grace of God that we had this opportunity and that we said yes. And our kids have just thrived here, which has been really beautiful. Mm. And then getting to work with IJM here in the city and go, how do we get in front of all of these domains in the city mm-hmm. to invite New Yorkers in to this incredible work of justice that's happening around the world is such a joy. It's such a challenge, but such a joy. Yeah. You even light up when you start talking about the city and we start talking about working to confront and really even just address injustice. So for you, what's the lovely and the beautiful of the mm. city? Oh, the people. <laughs> oh, the people, the diversity of the people, getting to meet and hear stories of people that I just go, how good that we get to do life together and hear one another's stories and rub shoulders for however long it is, whether it's, you know what? We made eye contact on the subway and got to exchange like that similarly annoyed look with each other like, yeah, this is what's going on, to just the in-depth conversations that you get to hear. To hear people's resilience Mm. is incredible. To be reminded that God is so very real and very near and moving at all times, and Mm. He invites us in to partner with Him in the simplest of ways sometimes, you know, whether it's just giving someone a smile or (laughs) helping someone with a stroller up the stairs, right? Mm. And just going, this is that image of God that we get to see in one another. Mm. But then there's the tensions of going, you know what? We don't all agree. The diversity piece is hard because you will step on each other's toes. And what does that look like to humbly come before the other person and say, I'm so sorry. I worded that in a way that was so dishonoring Mm. to you. Can you help me understand? There's a humility, I think, that has to be present in living in the city. And I just feel like I've been a student for the last seven years, just learning and getting to meet my neighbors. It's Mm -hmm. just a joy. So true. I think for me, when I moved here, it was also that sense of the humility of recognizing that the world is much bigger than your ability to impact it by yourself in the kind of ways that I found my faith community often talking about. You know, it's like, let's go change the world. Let's go do it. And then you like move to a place that has eight and a half million people in such a small radius. And you go like, man, I literally can't be in the Bronx and Brooklyn at the same time. I can't be in Queens and Manhattan. Like I have to recognize and honor and support what people are doing in areas and communities and neighborhoods that I can't be in. I don't know. For some reason, I just became more aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part of that is the justice piece. And so it sounds like you were exposed to IJM from that time in Dallas, but you didn't start serving in an official capacity, I guess, or ongoing until you moved here. I got to know my colleague here that was in my role previously. And so we became friends. And then just a couple of years ago, he had reached out and said, Hey, I'm switching roles. You know, I think you should maybe consider applying for this job. And I read the job description and was just like, well, I love all of these things. This is what I'm passionate about. Let me talk to people about justice and let me talk about how do we get the church Mm -hmm. and the city of New York involved in this work that is so near to God's heart. And so I said yes to that. And fortunately, they said yes to me as well. (laughs) So I'm really grateful for that. What was it about what you got exposed to after writing the song, after being inspired? in that way that said, this is what I need to do in addition to planning this church. Because it wasn't like you didn't have a whole lot on your plate. Right, oh, yeah. right. And being a mom and a wife and relocating and adjusting. What was it about IJM that you said, this is so important to do in this work of justice? 
You know, I think because I tend to be pretty achievement oriented, like performance oriented, right? Even when I was a worship pastor, there was a bit of that performance treadmill that kept going. And when I was really kind of face to face with injustice in the world, there was a sense of deeper purpose. God is going, this is really close to my heart and I want you to join me in this. So I think it was very much kind of this invitation of this is so near to God's heart that I just wanted to be a part of that. That's something that is leaving things a little better than they were when I found it, right? And it's not my doing, but God inviting me to partner Mm -hmm. with Him. And again, I love the organization of IJM. It's not only the work that we do of bringing rescue to those who are enslaved and experiencing violence and bringing restoration to those through aftercare centers, but also repairing the systems that are broken for the long haul. And so going, this work is a long work, but it is worth it in the end to see that. And so just that long-term vision, I mean, IJM has been around for 25 years now. We're celebrating Mm -hmm. 25 years this year. And we've already rescued 66,000 people and protected millions, but we have a goal of by 2030 to protect 500 million more people in poverty from violence. So just to be a part of something that is going to have huge implications worldwide for the long run Mm. is really, really important. And not only that, but I love the fact that at IJM, we are a community of spiritual formation that does the work of justice. Mm. So it is not just the work we do, but it is how we do it. And it is this continual coming before God and going, we can't do this on our own. The weight is too much for us to carry. The work we have to do, but the weight is actually God's to carry. So having that reminder is really, really important. And one thing I really appreciate about working at IJM is that as part of this community of spiritual formation, we have this communal rule of life. And I love, especially in, in thinking of a rule of life as a trellis, especially in the realm of a communal rule of life, because the trellis is this simple structure. Maybe this is the Iowa farm girl in me coming out. It's this simple structure, <laughs> you know, of both vertical and horizontal pieces. So they're connecting us to God and they're also connecting us to one another. But this structure has to be simple enough that it gives freedom for us to grow and move where we need to and do the work that we need to in the way that we need to do it. It has to be strong enough that it carries the weight as the work gets really heavy because Mm. it gets really, really heavy, you know, Mm. especially our teams that are on the ground in the 14 countries where we work. They're facing really hard things every single day. They are facing the most heinous evil that we can imagine from online sexual exploitation of children to violence against women and children, to police abuse of power, to slavery, forced labor, slavery, sex trafficking, all of it. This rule of life has to be strong enough to hold that. Mm. Related to being strong, it has to be durable to last through the storms, through the scorching sun, through the different seasons, through the wind that comes. I think about our team in Kenya that works specifically with police abuse of power. And actually in 2016, we had three team members that were murdered by police. So our colleague, our driver and our client, they disappeared and then their bodies were found in a river several days later. And so their trial has been ongoing mm. for six years now. And actually any day now we're awaiting the conviction. And so we're just praying for that. And how do we hold each other up in that? Mm. How do we keep going in that work? And I think that's part of it is as this community of spiritual formation with this communal rule of life, we each practice solitude for 30 minutes every day. That's part of our job is mm. we go, we're going to carve out this time. We meet to together to pray communally for 30 minutes every day, which is so beautiful because we can just not only bring our needs before God, but we can also celebrate together when things are going well. And also you're keeping the vision constantly in front of each other and going, this is the bigger work, right? It's not just my little piece that I'm working on, but I'm part of this bigger vision and this bigger mission all the time. 
And then we do quarterly prayer retreats together where we literally all get together and we come together to pray and be encouraged and again, be reminded of the why behind the work that we do. And then each of us takes an annual day of solitude. And so there's this rhythm that just keeps us growing, keeps us connected to both God and each other. And I think keeps us resilient, you know, in order to keep going in this long road of justice. Wow, that's beautiful, that picture of the trellis and how we need that structure of life, not only to sustain the work, but also sustain the intimacy and the connection with God. It reminds me of John 15, right? Abide in me. Absolutely. I abide in you. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Mm-hmm. And that could be so easy and tempting when the work is so much and the labor is so few to try to make that up on your own strength. Yeah. What have you seen as part of the challenge or maybe blind spots or maybe just reasons why it's not intuitive for other communities of that spiritual formation, like churches, to put their hands to that work? Because as you talk about just the clarity of the vision of that quartet of the vulnerable that we see in the Old Testament, and it kind of almost screams loud, but at the same time, not everybody is heeding that call. What do you think are some of the challenges that prevent that from happening? Yeah, that's a great question. I think some of it is we get so easily comfortable. Mm. I know that was it for me. We have a tendency to idolize our comfort, idolize our security here, idolize the nuclear family as being like, this is the end all be all. And the us form no more mentality, you know. (laughs) And I think that's a little easier in cities to overcome than suburbs, right? Where you go, I can pull into my driveway and shut my garage door and not talk to my neighbor for as long as I want. Here in the cities, I can't walk out my door without rubbing shoulders with my neighbors and being faced with poverty, being faced with injustice, hearing sirens. It's always in front of us. Mm. I think comfort is a big part of it. In Mark, the teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus says, you know, he starts with the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And right there, I think some of us are wired more. I had a a mentor of mine say this one time. His name is Mark Wilson, so I want to give him a shout out. He said, some of us are wired to love the Lord with our heart. Like, give me the praise and worship. Mm. Some of us are wired to love the Lord with all of our soul. Again, I'm reading Henry now and I'm meditating on scripture. This is where I experience God. Some are through study. I'm going to just soak up all of N.T. Wright or, you know, Esau Macaulay or whatever it is. I'm just going to read it all. And some really do find loving the Lord your God like it comes through strength. And I think oftentimes we find our really justice-minded people are like, I'm going to use this strength that God has given me. Mm. Now, what's interesting, though, is that he does say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. So we can't disregard the and because we're all called to this, right? So I think that's part of it too, is just understanding this is not something that is just for a few Christians. The more we grow in holiness, the more we should be growing in our passion to seek justice. Mm. I think that's key to discipleship because that's God's heart. That's a word. And it reminded me that the same word for righteousness in Hebrew yeah. is also translated as justice, depending on just the context. Yeah. And again, the same in Greek. So when we see in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. That's right. That's all of it. It's all inclusive. And yet it can be difficult to hold those things together because we're all prone to lean in a certain way. I, I love the way you broke that down. The other thing too, going back to that question of like, why is it maybe a challenge for as many churches as there are in the US, for example, but far fewer involved in this kind of work. I mean, some of it is even awareness. I totally yeah. co-sign on the comfort thing, but I remember reading Good News About Injustice yeah. by Haugen and being like, wait, slavery is still a thing? Yeah. I didn't even know that was still happening. Give us your spill of how big the issues are, the challenges are, so that we can get a sense of why we need to be involved with helping. Yeah, I would say the issues are still very big. I mean, when you look at, there are still 40 million people enslaved around the world today. That's forced labor slavery. That's 
sexual exploitation online of children, violence against women and children, sex trafficking. This is still happening. It's a $150 billion industry a year. Hmm. And we see it all over the world. Our job is not only to go in and bring rescue, which we do, and bring restoration, which we do, but it is also to come alongside the justice systems in each of these areas that are so broken in order to strengthen them, to bring repair where they're broken. Because a lot of these countries in the areas we work, they actually have laws on their books that say trafficking in persons is illegal, but they're not enforced. And so that's a lot of it for us is ending impunity. That's part of our theory of change is going, people need to be held accountable because traffickers and perpetrators are not actually that brave. They're not. So when these laws start to be enforced, then they actually go, it's not worth it. It's actually not worth it. So that is a big part of our job is coming alongside the local justice systems that are there, training, showing them like, hey, here's what we've seen and what we've seen around the world, just to give you a few statistics, because I think this is really important here. So we've been working around the world for 25 years, IJM has, and strengthening justice systems have incredible impact on vulnerable communities. So we have seen countless examples through the years of victims being freed and perpetrators being held accountable when those who are in power protect They do what they're supposed to. They protect their most vulnerable citizens. And so we've even had third parties that have done studies of our work, and they have shown that when laws are enforced, impunity is eliminated, and the prevalence of targeted crimes has decreased from anywhere from 50% to 86%. So 86% has gone down in some areas, which means all of those children who would have been exploited were not. They have now been protected. And so that's really our goal is to go, we want to protect this next generation so that the nightmares that people now who are experiencing all of the violence, they don't even have to experience that in the first place. So you mentioned there are about 40 million people that are caught up in some form of you know, slavery. Can you explain what that looks like? Because in the American context, we think of antebellum South, cotton right. fields. Is that what we're talking about or something different? We really look at the work that we do as being three major buckets. So we deal with slavery. And when we talk about modern day slavery, it's not like antebellum South or chattel slavery. We're looking at forced labor slavery. So when people don't get to experience the fruits of their labor, or they are not paid for their work, or they are made to work in extremely unjust situations. That's forced labor slavery. We look at sex trafficking. We look at the online exploitation, sexual exploitation of children, which we call OSEC. We also deal with violence against women and children. That might be domestic abuse. That might also be something called land grabbing, where once the wife's husband dies in many cultures, then her land, their home might be seized by someone else. And then she and her children don't have any access to it anymore. Mm. So violence against women and children we're dealing with, and then police abuse of power. We work predominantly in Kenya. So really, violence against people in poverty, when that is happening in a systemic, unjust way, that is where we show up. And we work with the local justice systems, the law enforcement that is already there, and we help to fix what is broken and come alongside them and partner with other organizations and train them up as well. Got it. One thing I'm curious about, because you know I studied abroad in Cameroon, and at the time it was literally ranked like the most corrupt nation in the world. I experienced it. So I saw a lot of NGOs, non-government organizations and other entities there. I'm curious, how does your colleagues or peer organizations see IJM, especially because of the spiritual formation connection that isn't really necessarily typical in those spaces? You know, the beautiful thing is 
I think because of the excellence with which we do our work and because the data shows that what we've been doing works, I think people are willing to partner. (laughs) Even organizations and businesses that you go, wow, they typically wouldn't necessarily want to work with a Christian NGO. I think you can't fight the data and you can't fight the fact that we actually have a vaccine for this problem that is proving that it is working. So people want to come alongside us. Now, that said, we do have to be careful in certain areas about even our Christian identity, but it is part of who we are and the work that we do. And I think there's a longing to see the beauty of shalom in places. Mm. And I think there's a common ground there in whatever area we're working in. There's one girl, we call her Cassie, and she's from the Philippines, and she kind of like me, grew up in a rural area, but that's where our stories diverge. So her family was extremely poor. In fact, they didn't even have electricity. They didn't have currency at all. And so when a family friend came, he asked her parents, you know, could Cassie come with me to Manila? I will pay for her school. I'll pay for her books. She'll be educated. Of course, as out of desperation, as a parent, you would be like, this is an opportunity for our child to provide for the family, to have a future. So they said yes. What they didn't know was that this family friend named AJ was actually running a cyber sex trafficking ring. And so when Cassie got to Manila with him, she was immediately thrust into this nightmare. And for years was exploited all over the world online. She even says, there were so many moments when I just wanted to die. I tried to stop my breath, but I couldn't. Mm. She was just at the end of herself, as is understandable. Well, finally, after several years, IJM, along with our local team there in the Philippines, was able to bring rescue to Cassie, as well as the rest of the group of people that were with her. And AJ was put in jail as well. And Cassie today lives in an aftercare center, has experienced just beautiful transformation and restoration. Cassie is a dancer, incredible, beautiful, talented dancer. And not only that, but she says, this is where I stand now. I love that she says that this is where I stand now, is that I want to use my voice in order to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing this so much right now, which is beautiful of just this empowering of survivor voices around the world to be the leaders in this space, because no voice is more powerful in advocating for those experiencing violence than survivors. And it takes people a while to get there if at all, right? Because it's not for everyone. But for those survivor leaders that are stepping into this space, we have what's called the Global Survivor Network right now. Hmm. And just to hear their powerful testimonies and to see the change that is happening in laws, in government, in their home countries has been breathtaking. And really, they are the leaders of this movement because one day, hopefully, IJM won't have to exist, right? Hmm. Because it will be the global survivors who are leading the way and saying, actually, we don't need to do this anymore. I mean, let's look toward that day. (laughs) Mm. You know, and obviously, there's a time coming when Jesus will return and make all things right and all things new. And we'll experience that full shalom of the way things are supposed to be. But until then, we work and we keep going. Amen. I'm just really inspired. I'm grateful for your story, for the journey from Iowa to New York City and all parts in between. I'm going to ask you to do something that we don't normally do, but I'm just struck by the enormity of the task. You mentioned 40 million people. And also the fact that I think about when the Apostle Paul says, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And that idea of government structures, of people in power, of people in leadership, and all those things that need to change. And then also for those, like you mentioned, like Cassie, could you pray for us as a church that we would hear bigger, mm. as you said, and mm. and that ultimately that the kingdom would continue to expand so much as to even one day, either before Jesus comes or, or when he cracks the sky to see IJM won't even be necessary anymore. That's yeah. an incredible picture. Could you 
pray for us. I would love to. God, I thank you for the fact that we can bring all things to you, that there is nothing that is too heavy for your shoulders. And so even as we talk about the weightiness of injustice around the world, and we know that there's so much, we look around and we see the brokenness and we see it right in our backyards. We see it around our country. We see it around the world. And God, we know that it breaks your heart too. I just pray, God, that you would continue to break our hearts, that we wouldn't grow numb to the evil that we see in the world, but God, that you would continue to keep us sensitive, (laughs) keep us just broken toward the things that break your heart. God, that we might not be paralyzed in that, but would be moved to action because you are a God who moves and through your Holy Spirit, you empower your people to bring change. I just think about Jesus, your words, when you quoted from the prophet Isaiah and you said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, to proclaim freedom and sight for the blind and release for the captives. Lord, we just pray that and we ask that you would use us, that whatever is in our hand, that you would use us as your church. God, I want to pray for all those right now who are experiencing violence, who are just experiencing evil that we can't even fathom. Lord, would your presence surround them? Would you protect? Would you bring rescue? And we know that that rescue more often than not includes human beings on the ground that you are working through that are walking into really hard, scary places, but you give them the courage to do that. So God, we pray for the survivors. We pray for the victims. We pray for those who are doing the hard work on the ground. And God, we do pray for the church. Give us the courage to speak up even when it's scary, even when it's hard, even when it's not popular. God, I think about even in Matthew 5, when it says in the message, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope because there's more room for God and his rule. So God, even when we feel like we can't do anything more, you're not done. And so we just continue to trust you and ask that you would fill your church. And then God, we do pray for the time when you will make all things right and all things new. We just long for that. We long for your shalom. We long for your goodness and things that are right when there will be no more tears, no more night, no more sorrow. And until that time, God, in this time that is the now but not yet, would you strengthen us? And would you remind us that you are still at work? You have not given up on this world that you have created. So God, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, even right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We too pray that someday there will be no need for organizations like International Justice Mission. But in the meantime, we are grateful for the work they do to bring God's kingdom justice in our world today. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Will and Sloan for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.